0: Now, and let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 11 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisle right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked our passage we're studying today. We want you to hear the Word, but we want you to see it with your own eyes. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt dwelt there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And the tower whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we should be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to look at the city and to see it and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing that they propose uh, uh, to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. And therefore uh, its name is called uh, Babel or Babel, Uh, in in the Hebrew because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word, how it has impacted our life, how it, it has changed us, how it has instructed us, Lord, how it prunes us. And, uh, and feeds us so grateful for it. We don't want a, a single uh, passage of Scripture or a single verse uh, of your Bible to be left on the printed page and fail to become a part of our understanding of you, a part of our relationship with you, a part of our processing of life around us. And so we pray that you take these nine verses, Lord, and give it just that place in each one of our lives this morning. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I think that the knowledge of our uh, roots, that is where we have uh, come from, and uh, who we have come from is a fascination to uh, most people, certainly a lot of people, and I would venture to guess that almost all of us in this room are o- aware on some level of something having to do with our family tree, who our ancestors were, what part of the world they came from, what nation or what tribe or what clan uh, they uh, we are descended from originally, and it's a curiosity that most people uh, have, and today Uh, like never before in human history, there's the ability to find out uh, information related to that relatively inexpensively uh, by sending a a cotton swab of your DNA from your mouth off to some kind of a lab. And it will tell you, sometimes shockingly, uh, where you come from and who your descendants are and, uh, and, and here you can discover then this information in terms of your, your heritage and your family tree. I was in a drugstore this week and saw that these are being sold over the counter now. You can somehow do it, do it in that way. And in Genesis chapter 10, it's known as the table. I know we're in chapter 11. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 10 is known as the table of the nations. And what it does is it provides each and every person in the world and uh, with the record of our very earliest ancestors. And so we know, of course, that each and every one of us in this room, every person in the world, every person in human history, is a descendant of that ancient uh, Adam and Eve. And uh, that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every race, every nation share the same bloodline. Uh, with with Adam and Eve and there is a very real sense in which the old saying is true and that is that concerning mankind that there's supremely only one race and that is the human uh, race. It's also interesting to realize that each and every one of us are not only descendants of Adam and Eve, but we are also descendants of Noah and his wife as the sole bloodline that survived uh, the flood in Noah's uh, day. And because we are descendants of Noah, we share his bloodline uh, back to Adam Uh, There is Adam and Seth and Enos and Canaan, Mahalaleel, uh, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, uh, Lamech, and Noah. And notice none of you are taking notes on this. It will be the focus of the home fellowships this week, and so you'll be at all loss. Listen, I can only lead you to water, Uh, but, uh, but interesting though, these names that are obscure to us people will doubtless see one day and uh, we share that bloodline we all have that genealogy in common Further, uh, each of us in this room is a descendant of one of Adam and uh, Noah and his wife's uh, three sons. We are the descendants of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And Genesis chapter 10 tells us where the descendants of these uh, three. People groups began to branch out into the world initially, and uh, obviously uh, they would continue beyond what is recorded in chapter 10. Uh, be, they would begin, they began to make trends in particular directions around the world, but they would continue uh, well beyond what's recorded in Genesis chapter 10 until uh, these three people groups ultimately uh, f- uh, go I- and fill the entire uh, world. Now, the chapter uh, 10 is worthy of, uh, of an in-depth study if you're interested in that kind of thing and it fascinates you. But for our purposes this morning, we want to just content ourselves with the, the broadest strokes related to it. And that is the understanding that Shem is considered to be the father of the peoples of the Middle East. Uh, including the Jews. Ham is considered to be the father of the peoples who uh, populated Africa. And Japheth is considered to be the father of what is known as the Indo-European peoples. It includes Russia, it includes Europe, it includes India, as well as Asia. And chapters 10 and 11 also provide us with an explanation, uh, fascinatingly enough, for Uh, the origin and the existence of nations and of languages. Perhaps you've never given any thought uh, to where in the world do we begin to establish nations in human history? And uh, and when did um, a multiplicity of language uh, come on the scene in human history? And Genesis chapter 10 uh, and 11 inform us of that. Chapter 10 tells us uh, what... Uh, part of the world these different uh, people groups began to expand uh, into, but it's chapter 11 that tells us what brought this dispersion about. And so uh, it's important to understand that chapter 10. Uh, while it precedes Chapter Eleven here, uh, as as it's uh, recorded in the Bible, uh, that it is not chronological here, and the event of Chapter Eleven concerning the Tower of Babel uh, preceded the events of the dispersion of of Chapter uh, in the uh, of Chapter Ten, and so you have the the the. Uh, uh, the explanation for uh, the, the dispersion given after the explanation of what it is that the world was prior to that. Now notice in, in chapter 11 here uh, the concerning the Tower of Babel. And in verses 1 through 4 we have man's sin at the Tower of Babel recorded for us here. The context is given we're told in verse 1 that it was a time in which everyone spoke the same language and so mankind had a single language one common language. And imagine how uh, much easier that would make things, uh, even in our world. I mean, if it, it, you have this unifying influence of a single language, if everybody spoke the same language, how much easier things would be. And that was the condition of, of that time in, in human history. We don't know what the language was, but I think we can be confident as uh, citizens of the United States of America that it was English and um, that sense of self-importance that we both possess but uh, candidly if we were to try and uh, guess in terms of what the language uh, would have been probably the best guess would be Hebrew uh, but uh, but, there's, uh, but what language it is, we, th- we can't know definitively. Uh, there's always the question that people have in terms of what language will we speak uh, in heaven. And again, if we were to choose from human languages, we would probably guess that Hebrew might have the inside track on all of that. But we may speak a, a language in heaven that is unknown to us in the world uh, today. Notice in verse 2 that the population of the earth at this time, and uh, at this time of, G- of Genesis chapter 11, is about a hundred years after the flood. So the entire population of the world is clustered together, and they move kind of en masse uh, uh, east to a large plain in the land of Shinar, and then they uh, settled there. So they leave what is probably the region of the uh, Mount Ararat or the the Ararat mountains, this high ground where the the uh, uh, Noah's Ark uh, lodged itself, as we're told scripturally for everyone, including, Ad- uh, including Noah and his wife and, and their family, and then the animals then from, from the Ark following from the flood. As they make their way from, perhaps from that region, but surely to the plain of Shinar, they certainly knew how to pick uh, good real estate, and uh, very, very fertile valley... Watered uh, even today by the Tigris and Euphrates River, it would become the future site of uh, Babylon and the Babylonian uh, Empire. And it uh, is what we know today as uh, the modern-day Iraq. And it is important to understand that this decision to uh, settle en masse... Uh, on the plain of, of Shinar there was a direct violation of the command that God had given uh, to mankind through, uh, to Noah uh, following the, the flood. And uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the entire earth. So they come... <clears throat> To this plain of Shinar and their intent in locating there and in locating as a single population uh, was uh, threefold. First uh, verse three, to build a city. And not merely a city, but very significantly to uh, complete with a, t- a, a tower whose top would be in uh, the heavens. And so they began to use the materials for building that were available to them there. On the plain of Shinar, you don't have a large amount of stone, which would be used for, mostly for most, bu- most building in the ancient world. But you had plenty of soil that had uh, clay in it. And so they uh, took this clay soil and they made bricks out of it. And then we're told that rather than sun drying those uh, bricks, there's some real sophistication here. We're told that they baked them in order to make them more uh, durable. And then they used tar or they used asphalt, as the word is here in the New King James uh, as, uh, f- uh, from what were oil pits in that area. We know now there were tremendous oil reserves uh, in, in Iraq. And they used that then as mortar with which to join the bricks. It is interesting that we are not only told that they were intent upon building a city, but again, intent upon building a city whose tower uh, reaches to, uh, to the heavens. It doesn't mean that they ever imagined that they could build something that would rise so high from the earth that it could actually physically uh, reach into uh, heaven itself or take them to heaven. The idea was to build a tower that was set aside for approaching God, uh, reaching up to the God. Who is in heaven? So it was a religious building, and I uh, doubtless a precursor to the massive ziggurats that ziggurats that were later built by the Babylonians, upon which they then placed their temples, and uh, believing that these uh, elevated spaces and these elevated temples uh, connected heaven and earth. Second, we're told that this city and this tower was built for the purpose of Making a name for themselves, nothing new under the sun is there. So their motivation was that somehow uh, there would be this uh, search for God, this reaching out to God, uh, but that uh, this uh, this building and this tower would also be a monument uh, to man's greatness. And third, we're told that they built this city in order to avoid being scattered over the face of the the whole earth. But again, uh, this purpose of of, of desiring not to be scattered was being uh, done in total defiance of God's commandment to them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the entire earth. And so the Tower of Babel represents an attempt by man uh, first to approach God, to approach heaven on the basis of human effort. On the basis of works, on the basis of man's uh, wisdom, and then second, on uh, by way of uh, not only uh, approaching God by way of man-made religion, but also on the basis of a man-centered religion. And then third, uh, uh, to approach uh, God and to establish a religion which possesses really no concern for the God of the Bible or His commandments. And of course, some variation of this is always going on in human history. And I think today there's this saying that has become quite popular for people uh, that goes something like this, I'm spiritual but not religious. And uh, I don't believe in God or religion, but I am a spiritual person. And oftentimes it's used to describe a a godless uh, spirituality, a a uh, man-centered, self-centered spirituality. Someone might uh, say, I like to believe that there's something beyond ourselves in this life, something bigger than us that we aren't alone in uh, the universe. I want to be open to the possibility that there might be a meaning to life that transcends uh, man. But I'm not open to the possibility of a real God out there with, uh, who has real commandments and demands that those commandments be obeyed. Because to believe in such a God, a God who is actually greater than us, Uh, a God who is uh, as real and well-defined as he is in the Bible, that would then make us accountable to him. And it would mean the relationship with him would have to be on his terms and not on our terms, including the keeping of all of those uh, messy commandments uh, that he might uh, uh, have. And so many people want spirituality, but they don't want any accountability. And that certainly characterizes our age. We want to say that we're open to worshiping God. We want to even say that we are worshiping God, when in fact we simply want a spiritual cover uh, for a life of the worship of self. And all of this is the Tower of Babel. The problem with all of this, uh, first of all, concerning approaching God or approaching heaven on the basis of of human effort and works, as is represented in the fashioning uh, of the bricks and the uh, the baking them, the application of the asphalt, and all of it as a part of their own plan uh, for reaching uh, into the heavens, as if God hadn't already revealed to them that the only way a relationship with God is possible or would be possible, as he described it in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, as we saw some weeks ago, is that it would occur through faith in a Messiah, uh, in a Savior that God would provide to the world and who would come into the world of the seed of a woman speaking of Jesus himself. And I think that man's pride is at its peak when he becomes convinced uh, collectively or even individually uh, that he is free to approach God on his own terms and to do so in defiance of the terms that God has already made clear in his word. We can't even match our socks half the time as human beings. And, uh, and we are going to now dictate to God how we will qualify ourselves for entering into heaven. I mean, you think about the chutzpah of that, the absolute nerve of that. Uh, that I am going to determine how I enter into God's living room, and God is just going to have to like it. That's craziness, and yet it, it is prevalent all through human history. The Tower of Babel represents any religious system that wants to approach God on their own terms as opposed to God's terms, to be saved on their own terms as opposed to God's terms, to walk with God uh, on the basis of their own terms as as opposed to uh, the terms that are revealed in the Scripture. And the Bible teaches that entrance into heaven is not achieved on the basis of human effort, or on the basis of, uh, of human works, or on the basis of uh, human ambition. It teaches that we are, in and of ourselves, completely uh, as sinners and uh, as the creation, that we are completely uh, unqualified to approach God on the basis of our own righteousness. And of course, any of us, if we enjoyed even 30 seconds of sanity in the course of our life, of some self-awareness and honesty about ourselves, would have to recognize that about ourselves that uh, 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 that, w- we would, uh, that we would ultimately expect if, if there was a God that did exist that when we ultimately found him at the end of our, uh, our, our search if he was truly a God uh, at all that we would not be able to freely approach him uh, on the basis of our own righteousness if he was holy at all Isaiah chapter sixty-four, verse six: But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Not our, Isaiah doesn't say our unrighteousnesses. That would be clear enough. Clear enough. But even our un, even our righteousnesses as human beings is like filthy rags before God. Because they're so tainted by wrong motives and selfishness and, and so many other things. I can do the right thing under the wrong motive, and it mars all of it. Uh, but, but so it is. Even us at our best, it's, it's, it's filthy rags. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one, Uh, There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've come together. uh, They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then uh, again in that same chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans chapter 10, uh, uh, Paul uh, deals with it head on. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." And so God teaches that the only way a person can be qualified for heaven, uh, the only righteousness that uh, is acceptable in heaven, uh, comes through a faith in Jesus Christ. And that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible teaches that the perfect righteousness, right onness, rightness of Jesus is then put to our account. So that when God looks at us for the rest of our lives and through all of eternity, he no longer sees our unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ put to our account. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That v- verse rises up mightily against all that we see uh, being uh, 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 attempted at the Tower of Babel. And then Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, Uh, to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him again the righteousness of Christ put to our account uh, providing us with the righteousness that is is required by heaven and as Paul talked about the ignorance even of the Jewish people in this regard any attempt to try and work my way to heaven or earn my way to heaven even by virtue Of religion uh, is an attempt that is based in ignorance it is based in an ignorance of the fact that the only righteousness that is acceptable in heaven is a perfect righteousness and only Christ provides that righteousness very often you'll hear someone describe Christianity in this way they'll say Christianity is not a religion it's a relationship with, uh, with God. And, and I, I like this saying, and it's absolutely true, and that it emphasizes the fact that uh, Jesus uh, died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, not supremely to bring another religion uh, into uh, the world, but rather to bring us into a relationship uh, with him and the, the relationship we were created by God to have uh, with Him. And so Christianity is supremely a relationship uh, with God. But there, there is a sense in which that statement that Christianity is not a religion, but it is a relationship with God, there is a sense in which that statement uh, is uh, not entirely uh, uh, accurate. Because our English word, religion, comes from a Latin word which means uh, to link. And in the sense of, uh, of, of the intention of the meaning of religion w- in terms of language, Christianity is the only religion in the world in, in the truest sense of, uh, of the word because only Christianity provides a link between God and man. It is the only religion that provides the capacity for us to have a relationship with God. And so when Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he wasn't boasting, he wasn't bragging, it was simply the truth about how to be saved and how to enter into a relationship with God, the God who has created us, and the relationship with God for which we have been uh, created. The Tower of Babel, as well as the rest of the Bible, teaches that any religion that exists in the world, uh, that teaches man can approach God on the basis of works, or human effort, or self-righteousness, is a man-made religion. And, and it is way off base, and it doesn 't matter whether those religions have existed for uh, two hundred years or whether they have existed for three thousand years uh, they, uh, they they as a man- made religion, a workspace religion, they cannot provide us with the truth about how to come to know God. We cannot good work ourselves we cannot human effort ourselves into heaven uh, or make ourselves acceptable to the holiness of that scene. Second, the Tower of Babel represents any religious system that is man-centered as opposed to being God-centered. Uh, it is any religious system that exalts man, uh, that exalts self rather than exalting God. It is any religious system that gives the appearance of being about God uh, in order to give it some legitimacy, in order to give it some kind of validity, but it is really just another excuse to exalt man, to exalt his achievements, and to exalt his ideas. And tragically, it makes the worship of God then like everything else in the world, man-centered and man-exalting. And in these realms, the sermons become more about man than about God more about man's wisdom than about God's wisdom and I can come to believe that uh, in this relationship with God that I am the most important person I- in this relationship that God just exists as a genie to bless me uh, in this relationship uh, he is uh, 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 he is surely the co-pilot uh, in, in the relationship. And then in terms of the worship in song, it all becomes about making me feel good. Telling me how wonderful I am as opposed to uh, exalting God. And then church becomes, religion becomes, uh, it, it becomes like everything else in the world. There, then, then there is no escape from uh, the exaltation of man, the absorption uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, mankind, and, uh, and it, it, nothing to lift our heads above uh, ourselves to something greater. Isaiah 42, verse 8, uh, the Lord said, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved uh, images. The inventions of man. And third, the Tower of Babel represents any religious system that possesses no true submission uh, to the God of the Bible, uh, that does not nurture, does not... Uh, demand uh, does not uh, teach and, and uh, respect for god 's commandments, and, and here is a religious system that uh, that looks at God and says, Well, God can make his commandments." Uh, He can tell us in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 that we're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, but we can feel absolutely free under this religion that we've invented in our own minds to completely disregard not only his position as God but to disregard all of his uh, commandments as we will. We can fashion Christianity or whatever's described in the Bible or anything that we want into exactly what we want. We can make the religion what we, we want it to be with complete disregard uh, for, uh, uh, for God or any obedience to his commandments. And there's no fear of God, uh, no sense of accountability to God. But... No unity based upon disobedience to God's word, that is rebellion, or the exaltation of self over, over God, the selfism, or man uh, building his way to heaven, self-righteousness can end in anything uh, but confusion and ultimately in in God's judgment being brought upon it. Because a true and an enduring unity can only occur around submission to His way of salvation, the exaltation of God above all else, uh, the highest concern of our life not being for ourselves, but for His glory and then obedience to His Word. Well, God's response to all of this is in verses uh, 5 through 9, and uh, he took note of it, we're told in verse 5. But it is important to notice for God to take note of this great thing that man thought that he was doing, that it did require God to come down from heaven to even look at it. Uh, And so they're building up. God has to come down. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that God wasn't aware of what they were doing. It's anthropomorphic language that's being used, the, the uh, attributing of, of human traits to God so that we can kind of understand what, what is uh, happening here to make the point. In other words, here mankind builds the highest building they can. I mean, there's monument to man. Uh, but in order for God to even see it, he has to leave heaven. Uh, he has to descend from heaven in order to do so. And it is so insignificant and microscopically small in the grand scheme of things, God has to come and then stoop down to even see it. In other words, he's so great that he had uh, that He had to uh, stoop down he, uh, to see this puny, pathetic thing that they were up to, like... Uh, somebody stooping down to look at an ant and and what it might be up to on the ground. And any attempt to establish any religion, any man-made ideas about God and how man can be saved and come into a relationship with God, all of it is puny and unspeakably pathetic as a thing when put up against the Absolute majesty of the salvation that is found in Christ. As the old hymn goes, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. And the fact of the matter is, is that no matter how high man builds his tower, whether it's intellectually, whether it's physically or whether it's spiritually, God still has to condescend mightily to even come into contact with it, and they would have never have reached heaven on any level. They would have never come into contact with God on any level, except that God came down. And this, of course, is the great heart of Christianity. This is why Jesus came uh, from heaven to us because we can never build a way to heaven. Salvation can never happen uh, from the orientation of man to God or earth to, uh, uh, to, to heaven. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? In other words, there's no, uh, no hope in salvation, uh, in a salvation in, we, in which we must work our way into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John, chap- John chapter 1, verse 14. One of my most famous verses in all of the Bible in this regard. And the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We could not know anything about God, much less have a relationship with God. Unless God provided a salvation that had its origination in him. And then was supplied from heaven to earth, or supplied from heaven uh, to man. And when God says in verse 6, now nothing that they propose will be withheld uh, from them. In other words, this had the potential. Uh, what they were doing now, this religious system that they had put together, now had the potential to bring the human race to the brink of another uh, cataclysmic, catastrophic judgment of God, as was occurred in the time of the flood, and and this nonsense that they were involved in represented a greater danger to uh, to a great danger to God's promise to provide mankind with a savior from the seed of the woman Uh, everything is at stake now we've got the entire population of the world buying in uh, to this thing and now God's promise to provide a savior is completely lost upon all of them in other words the truth about how to be saved the truth of the savior that God would provide has now been completely overwhelmed by all of this man-made religion and man-made nonsense. And then God, verses 8 and 9, proceeded to break up the entire scene uh, very, very simply, and that he confused uh, their language. It's it's interesting. When I was a boy, I, I would go to the doctor's office every once in a while or a dentist's office, and they used to have those illustrated Bible books and I would always begin at, begin at the beginning because that's what you did with books. And, uh, and uh, by the time I got called in for whatever, I would always come and make my way to the picture of the Tower of Babel, and here's this great thing being built up, and 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 all, and and, uh, and I would just marvel at the, the entire scene, and then you know what God did there. I didn't understand much about it, but it was amazing to me. But you put yourself in the middle of that scene, and, uh, and in an instant, instead of everybody uh, there being of one language in which to communicate, uh, and now there are many, and people just a moment before, or just the day before, that you communi- could communicate with before fluently. Now they can no longer understand you, you can no longer understand uh, them at all. And imagine the babble, the babel, uh, the confusion that would be immediately uh, come I- into being as a result uh, of this. But, but then, as you're in the midst of that scene, slowly, somehow, in all of this now great torrent of different languages that are being spoken, you would begin to hear somewhere in the distance, somebody speaking a language that you could understand. And of course, naturally, you would begin to gravitate toward that person. And then it would be the two of you, and then it would be three, and five, and ten, and however many, as as now by virtue of, of these languages, and whatever language God gave to each person. And this was something that he was in control of. And... And as each person began to, to go and, and find these others that were speaking their language, the great crowd would begin uh, then to form into groups based upon the language that they spoke and they understood. And by virtue of who uh, God gave what language to, he was selecting exactly what kind of person and gene pool and uh, distinctive characteristics of the people that he wanted to then send into the various parts uh, of the world as a result of it. And so here he is supernaturally involved in their uh, gathering uh, uh, together as these these groups based around language, and then they're scattering, and scattering them for the purpose of getting them to obey his commandment to fill the entire earth. So God clearly was not impressed with their plan, as opposed to Uh, of gathering in one place as opposed to the plan he had given to them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the entire uh, earth. I think it's interesting to notice that uh, it was God that established the multiplicity of languages uh, in human history. And, And those that study language, there is no explanation, no human explanation, uh, for why there is not just one language in the world. Uh, where did all of these languages come from and uh, in, in their, their broad diversity? And here's the explanation in, in the Bible. But it was God that established the multiplicity of languages and then the nations that then formed around those languages. And the interesting thing here is that uh, he did it as a barrier to forming a one-world government whose foundation uh, is spiritually self-righteousness that sees man as supreme and is uh, anti-God. And this concentration of power that he saw being exhibited at the Tower uh, of Babel, uh, uh, he looked at it and said, this is not a good thing. Because for man to be concentrated around those kind of things, spiritually self-righteous, seeing man as supreme in the universe and being anti-God as a result of it, that would make it very, very easy if the entire world was indoctrinated in this way for a single individual or for the devil then to take control of the entire world in one fell swoop. But And, and, and uh, diabolically and disastrously, it's going to ultimately uh, occur uh, under the Antichrist uh, uh, anyway. But, but here, here we see the weakness of, of the various languages of the world and the various nations that, that constitute the world. And that is the constant conflict. We seem to always want to go to war, uh, with nations other than our, our own, or with people that are different than us, uh, I- including the, the difference of their uh, language. And so this is the baggage that, uh, this is the, the, the weakness that people recognize about nation-states and about nations and about, about language. And it's a legitimate uh, weakness. And so this is why there is the call for a one-world government to unite together Uh, in order to be done with these nations, nation-states and the wars that are are so often associated uh, uh, with them. And yet God looks at all of it and and, and as messy as nation-states are and nations and individual nations are and the languages associated with them, uh, He looks at it and in essence declares it is less dangerous To deal with that as human beings, day in and day out. And we deal with that as human beings, day in and day out. But it is less dangerous than to live in a fallen world that unites around a godless, man-centered ideology. And the only circumstances under which a one-world government can be safe uh, and it's coming one day uh, is when it will exist under Jesus Christ Himself during the kingdom uh, age. Now, uh, thankfully, we live in a spiritual uh, babel today. The whole world is. So many religions, so many ideas about God. I mean, there are almost as many as there are people. The freedom that we feel in Western uh, culture. To be spiritual but not religious, which means I can come up with my own uh, religion. I can come up with my own God, my own concepts of God. It is interesting that when we do create, and you talk with people about uh, the God that they do worship, uh, having rejected the God of the Bible, tell me a little bit about your God. And as they begin to describe the God that they worship, you realize they're describing themselves. Uh, it's, it's always the way that it is. And so it is, it is a spiritual uh, a tower of Babel. The entire world uh, is yet today. And yet, thankfully, Jesus brings clarity uh, to the world that we live in uh, spiritually. And here is this world that we live in. It continues to be essentially two beliefs about approaching God. First like Babel on the basis of human effort and human works and then the worship of self and the rebellion against God's commandments. There's no surrender to God. There's no submission uh, to God uh, as ultimate. And then you have the simplicity and the truth of, of what the Bible declares and that what God was protecting in the dispersal at the Tower of Babel. And that is that salvation is found in the Savior, in the Messiah that he promised to send into the world, born of the seed of a woman, and that is through faith in Christ uh, himself. And if you sit here this morning and you have never, ever trusted uh, in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he is who you're looking for, uh, he is who you are made for, He is the means by which you enter into the relationship with the God who has created you and the only relationship that will satisfy you and the only relationship that uh, will meet the needs uh, in your life as a result of being so far from God, as a result of our sin. And if you have never, ever trusted in Him before, you say to yourself, perhaps, I know all about the Tower of Babel. I've been in New Age. I've been in Easter religions, uh, Eastern religions. I've studied Mormonism. I've studied Jehovah Witnesses. I've studied uh, Islam. I've studied this and I've studied that. And I'm as confused now as ever I was at the beginning of my search. And it's all exactly as God said it would be. And the confusion will remain until you are born again by the Holy Spirit. When God's Holy Spirit comes into your life by you putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then receiving everlasting life. But even more than that, beginning a relationship with God. And if you've never done that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you and for you to begin that relationship with God this morning. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you that there is a a safe and a glorious ending, conclusion to any person's spiritual search for truth about you, how to know you, and how to have a relationship with you in the midst of all of the spiritual Babel that exists yet today. And I pray for the simplicity of this truth concerning the Tower of Babel and the events that you would use it to reach into every heart of every person that is here today that is in the midst of that search or has given up the search but has just come today for one reason or another, and that you would let them know that you love them, you care about them, and that you did what they could never do, and that is to bridge the gap between heaven and earth by sending your Son into the world and him coming here to seek and to save what is lost. And Lord, we pray for each person that doesn't know you today, that they would come to know you and to come into the peace and the joy and the clarity and the blessing of that relationship that is found with you and your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.